Denying the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We have your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Yeah, uh, this is our part two from last week that I didn't get to because uh, I suck. But you know it. I don't hide it. If you're listening, you know the very questionable quality that I bring to all that I do. (sighs) I'm going to say thank you as always on this show that I refer to as my unpolished turd. I'm going to say a real big thanks. I always try and shuffle up the order each week. Don't always succeed, but I'm going to say huge thanks to Bell Racing Helmets USA. Love them. Absolutely love them. Along with TorontoMotorsports.com. Cooper Tires. Mighty, mighty fine folks. Was just looking at some photos from last year. This day last year, September 21st, on the Cooper Tires stage at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. What was my final live episode podcast of the year? And I'm staring at, uh, let's see, Brian Herta, guy who would go on to be the two-time champ the following day, that being Joseph Newgarden, five-timer Scott Dixon. Next to him, four-timer Sebastian Bourdais. So at least as of this day, we had 10 IndyCar championships across these knuckleheads, uh, plus the Robert Wickens. Uh, seriously, that was such a fun day. We must have had a couple hundred folks in attendance. It was a blast. I still have that podcast I need to put up, by the way. So I'll get to that soon. Also reminds me that what'll probably be the day this will be going up. You might be hearing this on Tuesday, the 22nd. That'll mark the one year anniversary of the last time I was at a motor racing circuit. And I don't say that with pride or happiness. Uh, it's just, we're going to invoke Juan Montoya. It is what it is. Uh, we moved just a couple days after this event last year to where I'm speaking to you from right now. And yeah, life got real busy. Then we had uh, this little pandemic and I haven't been to a racetrack in a year, y'all. That's just kind of nuts. So looking at that and before we get your questions, uh, we'll just mention that moments before looking at those photos, had a phone call from a dear pal by the name of William Theodore Ribs talking about NASCAR, Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin, Bubba Wallace, and we talk about a lot of these things, usually just between us. 99% of the phone calls are just between us, and as if some folks at IndyCar don't hate us enough for the things that we record, uh, Willie T and I just decided to keep this one private as well, but uh, the the tenor of the phone call from Willie right away, and I couldn't disagree with him, was, wow, NASCAR just keeps winning and winning and winning when it comes to expanding its horizons. And here's MJ, and here's all that he brings, and NASCAR. So happy for him and Bubba and Denny. Really happy for Denny. That guy seems like he has come such a long way in his growth and maturation as an American in recent months. Yeah, uh, the call was, well, great for them, and uh, really, truly, this is a pretty amazing thing, but, man, why is it always over there where things are kicking butt? Um, He and I also discussed something that I'm going to keep a little bit on the not-too-super, super uh expansive right now in terms of insight but he and i also discussed one thing related to indy cars 
race for equality and change. It's a, uh, a rumor that I had heard and I mentioned that to him and he said, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I knew about that two or three months ago that that's gonna, that thing's going to happen. So I hope to be able to tell you more here very soon, but yeah, all kinds of stuff developing, I guess, in the world that I was clueless about what else is new. You know, I got plenty more I can tell you, but I'm not going to because it is 7.56 p.m. And based on the word count from the part two from last week, plus some new questions y'all sent in this, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but I would like to eat by 10 o'clock tonight. So let's get rolling right now with a little bit of intro music. And where are we going to start first? You know where we're going to start? (laughs) told you this was my unpolished turd we're gonna start by opening the stupid word document that has the questions that i should normally have sitting right in front of me ready to go um but i do enjoy the fact that this is just (sighs) stream of consciousness total idiocy i call it out up front and we're gonna stick with it all the way through starting with uh let's see from twitter the handle is at asterix miguel I X X I I don't even want to try and pronounce it wrong because I'm gonna pronounce it even wronger than it should be. Uh, let's see. Question: Do you think Scott Dixon is a s- alien super robot and spun at Mid Ohio to make us mortals think he's a human? I think you're onto something there. I really do. I I'm not sure if he's an alien robot though, or just the finest product from the bowels of new zealand's advanced earth laboratories so not sure if there's an alien component it might just be they took little kiwi bird dna and feathers and lord knows what else sheep uh some wool and i don't know what they poured on top of it but uh, something and swirled it up probably lit it on fire and out from that beaker kind of grew a scott dixon like thing a little weird it's a ginger right i mean that wouldn't be the natural hair color i'd I'd go for that but anyways and then they just i think stuck in some musculature made out of titanium probably is a dixon thing there might be a little bit of steel you know there could be a melted pot or two that were used but yeah uh i think that's kind of sort of what happened here I will also tell you that it's pretty awesome to see Dixon, as you mentioned, spinning and making things hard on himself because maybe he's also a master New Zealand robot storyteller who realized if you just keep whooping up on everybody the way you have been, this championship's going to be over way too soon and no one's going to want to tune in and care. And I like to believe that that is indeed what he has been thinking of late in handing back, what is it, 45 points, I think, uh, to Newgarden over the last three rounds. 45 points might not sound like a ton. Oh, but it is. Uh, So, yeah, interesting how, and this is the part where I know it's a bit of a comedic opening question here, which I do appreciate, but I got to tell you, who among us, among y'all, said, oh yeah, Mid-Ohio, the place where Scott Dixon 
always dominates and or is top three material guaranteed. Yeah, he's going to come away with two 10th place finishes, wasn't it? Uh, started at the back, drove halfway to the front on Saturday for round one. And then Sunday, having tuned up the car and gotten it much closer, and yeah, sure looks like a podium or there or thereabouts, is going to... Oh, and he's spinning. <laughs> oh, and he's spinning. And he has it all to do over again. And he fights back. And... But here's where things didn't quite go according to plan. Course, Newgarden, uh, really maximizing as best as he could on the Saturday at Mid-Ohio. Uh, yeah, didn't really have the pace on Sunday. Rather weird, a tale of very disparate fortunes for the two of them. Dixie on Saturday, no serious pace. I realize that he did a lot of passing, but Newgarden was definitely podium material the whole time. Things more or less inverted the following day. I know that Joseph finished eighth, not the end of the world, but yeah, uh, with Dixon spinning into the grass and throwing everything away, it's a perfect opportunity for Joseph to really stick the knife in and take a ton more points off of him. Instead, running down an eighth uh, limited the damage pretty seriously. So, yeah, yeah. extraordinary things are going to have to happen for Dixon to not come away with the title. At least now, though, we can see little small glimpses of ways that uh, it could happen. Beforehand, yeah, it was pretty much not even a question we would entertain. Let's go to Harrison Riley. This is MP Short Question. What are your initial impressions of the Nashville street course layout? I... Absolutely love them, Harrison. Man who designed the circuit, the fine, where it's two Kiwi references in a row, Tony Kotman, he's good at that. They chose the right guy. I can tell you that it looks like it is going to be amazing. I had a thought that some sort of night qualifying would be stupendous uh, on Saturday during that event. Light the bridge up. And, you know, what we're a couple blocks away from music and, you know, all the fun, fun stuff uh, in downtown Nashville. I would say, well, then let's make some music of our own Saturday night and have them qualify. Maybe even do single car qualifying and just, you know, I mean, let's stretch it out and have some fun. Uh, who gives a crap, right? I don't care about qualifying formats and knockouts and whatever fast, this 12, six, whatever, like let's put on a show. Well, let's really do big, crazy, you know, and they don't necessarily have to go one by one, meaning go out and run, finish your complete lap. Then we'll send another car. Maybe you let one car get going and, you know, get halfway around the lap and you dispatch another and keep that going and pull one car off once they, you know, you get one warm-up lap, one flyer. You know, we don't want this thing to last too long. But I don't know. I like the idea that the track is really fast and awesome. We're using a bridge. There's a crazy wide turn one. You know, Robin Miller just wrote reminiscent of Cleveland and having been to Cleveland many times and loved the width of turn one. I think this is only a positive thing there as well. Um I just, yeah, it has such great potential. Also going to give a big 
shout out for young Olivia, also known as on Twitter, the retro rebel. If you don't follow her, please do. Uh, she and her dad are just beacons of light and amazingness. She took the time to do a, a Google maps, uh, ride around the circuit and posted that on her Twitter. And it was just so demonstrative of how this should be extremely cool. Also reminded me in some sections of, well, granted, I can't say the old Vancouver circuit because I think it had three different configurations, but had a little bit of Vancouver in there for me as well. So I love it, Harrison. The only thing that scares me is the bridge. Uh, so what do you do? Do you have recovery boats in just directly below kind of Monaco style before they head into the tunnel? Um, you know, what do you do there? Do you have big catcher's mitts to catch them? Do you have flotation devices? I don't know. And I'm sure it would never happen, but yeah, uh, it's been a, it's been a crazy year. So maybe my mind's wandering. Uh, that's the only thing I'm a little bit scared of. Do you have submarines down there? I don't know what you do. Um, recovery teams, get them in there right away. I don't know, but something would probably make me feel a little bit more at ease. Go to our pal, John Ranjo, a.k.a. John Wojnar. Uh, it says, MP, do you think the back-to-back podiums for Alexander Rossi is an admittedly late turning point for the season? It says, also, got to attend Mid-Ohio, and it was awesome. It says, we got to meet the great Roger Warwick, saw some cool Honda Ridgeline safety trucks. Being a Honda Ridgeline owner myself, it was awesome seeing the old trucks out there. Any good tidbits you know about them? It says, always praying for you and your wife at this time. Well, thanks, John. I don't know a thing about Honda Ridgelines. Uh, I really don't. I would say that <sighs> this would be something for you to pursue. I'm confident that the good folks at Mid-Ohio would probably be able to tell you a little bit of something. Reach out to them. That's a book report for you, John. We need to hear back next week. Uh, meeting Roger Work, always a good thing. Good man there. Rossi, yeah. Uh, you know, he's had a willpower-like year. And granted, Will, interviewed Will today for a story, just struck me how uh, cool it's been that he's had, what, 10 years, I think, in the same sponsor livery uh, by far the longest tenure of anybody currently in IndyCar that I can think of. I know that Scott Dixon and Target held the previous record until Target left, but just saw an old photo of Will 2009 at Long Beach in Marlboro colors and realized, like, geez, it has been forever. Plus, also thinking about the topic here, which is why I raised his name uh, alongside Rossi. I mean, the guy, what, Will is eighth in the standings right now. I don't think he's ever finished lower than fifth in the standings while driving for Penske. And that's with having some years that if you've followed for a while or if you've kept tabs on Will's career, there have been some years that have felt like disasters, exactly like Alexander has dealt with this year. And while Alexander's place in the championship does mirror that, uh, and you could say for sure that, you know, with this guy who everybody who thought they knew anything, myself included, put him in the top three, top four title 
contenders, Dixon, Herda himself, um, New Garden, maybe a Hunter Ray, maybe a Paginot, you know, whatever. But Rossi for sure. Top three, top four guy, top five maybe. After two podiums this last round, uh, plus throwing that one from the second Road America round, then a couple of, you know, decent finishes at Iowa. Um, that's been able to offset a lot of the bad. So he's now, after two podiums, back-to-back, plus another one in a couple other top tens, he's now 12th in the championship and has almost, I mean, actually, yeah, uh, almost half as many points as Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon is 456 points right now. Alexander has 230. I mean, truly, Dixie just needs four more points, and he has double the points that Rossi has. It makes no sense. So, yeah, by expectations' sake, uh, this has been a disastrous year for him. But I would say, if you want to talk about a team that might be feeling somewhat happy, bullish a little bit, maybe leaving mid-Ohio and going to Indianapolis GP and then St. Pete. Yeah, I, I think we're going to see Colton really show something, even more than he has, obviously winning the last race. But he's been their top performer of the year. Uh, what, five top fives? So I think we're going to see a little bit more from them, which means a little bit more from Rossi in terms of recent going. I think a page has been turned. I don't know if it's going to be race winning, but I do know that if we do not have an Andretti driver on the podium in the final three races, at least one of them, John, I'll be very surprised. And sometimes that's what happens. You are off on your off-season research and development, and the things that you think are going to make a lot of speed and performance don't. And it takes a couple of races to really have that point driven home. And then you scramble like mad to try and come up with some fixes. And they normally show up, again, depending on how soon you can spot them and start working. Mid-season, latter stages of the season, here we are. That timeline certainly works out. Going to keep rocking and rolling here. Got a couple in a row from our good pal Jeremiah Morell. Just had a chance to attend Mid-Ohio in person. It was a great weekend. Folks did their best to follow social distancing rules, and the atmosphere was laid back and enjoyable. Even had a quick run-in with Hinch and got a photo. Well, and I left in this opening part here, friends, because this is now going to be what we hope the model is heading into the doubleheader for the Harvest Grand Prix of fans in attendance, social distancing, things going well. I've been kept abreast of some oddities, we might call it, about the ticket purchasing and assignment and where you go and can't go. And, you know, I don't stay on top of all that stuff because it makes my brain cry. But hopefully all goes well in a mid-Ohio-like way where folks uh, can enjoy and be there, and everybody does whatever the track says they need to so that permission to have more people doesn't get yanked away for future events. Uh, says, notice in qualifying, cars are not trying to find gaps for clean air. 
almost appeared like teams were trying to get a lap in as quickly as possible, knowing a yellow would shut down qualifying. So Sunday, it was especially intense with a wet track. So by the sixth or seventh car in line, visibility was zero. Is there not a significant advantage to clean air for qualifying at mid-Ohio? Well, yes. Um, If we're talking about pulling out immediately in the dry, which would have been Saturday, keep in mind that everyone goes out on the Firestone primary tires, trying to put in the proverbial banker lap, but also put down uh, Firestone rubber in general, knowing that often you'll have different series out there on different rubber. Uh, Might even be mighty fine Cooper tires rubber. Uh, So try and put down some Firestone rubber and then come and pit late last couple minutes of the session and bolt on Firestone's stickier, faster alternates and then go for a quick time. So if you see folks bunched up a little bit heading out on the primaries, not a big surprise. If they're doing that on the alternates, yeah, that would be dumb. Talking about rain, could be something to this for sure. Um, Granted, as I recall... I think, and I know this wasn't too long ago, so I should have it all perfectly captured, but as I remember, I think the track got a little bit drier as the session went on, so in theory, speeds towards the end. Uh, The more laps you did, the better your lap times were. So heading out right away, falling all over each other, might not have made a ton of sense. So I think that's why were folks afraid of there being a red or just not getting enough track time. Uh, due to someone spinning off and the sector being yellow and, and screwing your lap time or red or whatever, I think there might be something to that. But as we saw, I believe, yeah, it was definitely a case where Santino Ferrucci made big, 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 big news by being the fastest in his group, uh, by being out there and running more laps, I believe, than just about anyone down to the last second. And uh, then obviously... As we moved on to the second round of qualifying, Colton was able to use a drier track to go faster. So, um, yeah, a little bit weird in the rain scenario, though, Jeremiah. But, yeah, in general, it's not always crazy crucial on the primaries. But if you're sending folks out in the way and not giving them a good enough gap or the drivers are unable to create their own gap, so we see them often going very slow trying to find that window to uh, perform on alternates then there is something falling down and breaking apart here um and another one here on double headers from both jeremiah again and emilio cortez uh we'll just go jeremiah again he says if the series wants to continue with double header races what if they tried to make the two somewhat different he says scott dixon was critical of the race distance on saturday uh both were 75 laps saturday and sunday by the way uh, he says, what a 90-lapper and a 60-lapper race have made strategy better than two at the equal distance. He says, I know 2020 is triage mode for the series, but if the doubleheader model continues, might that define the races? I love the way you're thinking here. And if this does continue and we have more of them in the future, meaning more than the planned one per year at Detroit, there might be something to this. If it's just same, same, uh, I, don't, I don't know, considering what folks would have seen this year, I don't know how much that would interest folks next year. Maybe folks would love it. could be totally wrong, but I, 
tend to be in agreement, Jeremiah, with any ideas of how do you add some variety? How do you add a bit of a curveball to things? Therefore, folks will react differently. Drivers, strategists, you name it, uh, engineers. Could this create something unexpected, something cool, different, or whatever? You never really want to know the outcome of the race, I would hope. And yeah, uh, we didn't have the didn't have all the the fun as I would hope we would in terms of just the pure racing part in these doubleheaders, especially the uh, the Sunday part. I know we got another question about that down the way, so I won't get into that too much here. Uh, but yeah, I love the idea. I don't know what it is, a loop-de-loop, um, a joker lap where you get to cut some portion of the circuit. You know, who knows? I mean, I'm halfway kidding. Um, yeah, but something. Let I me mean, do it. All this stuff is made up. I know I said that somewhere towards the beginning of the show, but I really do mean it. All this stuff is kind of made up. Yeah, there are rules and there's all kinds of whatever stuff, but if we're thinking about this series or any other, in terms of entertainment and engagement, the Indy 500 is going to be 500 miles long. I get that. That's non-negotiable. And there's so many traditions with that race. I think you kind of leave that alone. The rest of them? <laughs> I mean, whatever. Backwards, forwards. We're, let's. Who cares? Halfway through the race. We're inverting the field. I mean, I'm pulling stuff out of my backside here, but we're not in a place, I would say. I'm not going to try and make this a rant, although I might have already done that about a minute ago, but I don't know if we're in a place, Jeremiah, and the rest of my dear listeners, I don't know if we're really in a place where just sticking to the same old, same old is going to get us anywhere. And I say us, I'm not part of the series. I don't work for them or whatever, but... I feel like I'm part of this because I love it so much and invest so much of my time in it, both following it as a fan over however many years of my life and every day as a reporter, whatever person who really does wake up thinking about IndyCar and what am I going to do today to write about it, cover it, think about it, whatever. Uh, I don't know if just same old, same old, the thing that's going to get us more people, more fans, more something. Um, how many races have you watched or driven home from this year and said that was amazing? I know that not many races have had fans this year, but there have been some. But, I mean, creativity, it's going to piss off the paddock. We know that for sure. They're the ones who do not want variety, variables, anything with a letter V in it. Um, They don't want it. We, those who are trying to think about the entertainment, how many folks are going to watch, the excitement aspect, variables, whether it's rain out of nowhere, limited practice time, so teams don't really get to figure out the perfect setups for the cars. All these kinds of things can often make things far more exciting. So that's why I love where you're heading here, Jeremiah. Let's go to Emilio says, given the reluctance of team owners to do double headers, but the fans liking them. I'm not sure about that one, uh, Emilio, um, but we'll go with it. Would it be feasible to rotate them through different venues each year? For example, besides Detroit this year, we had gateway, 
with a doubleheader. Who knows? Next year, uh, mid-Ohio. Well, we already had a doubleheader there this year, but and so on. Definitely, I think I mentioned this in the past of let's just do this and throw in some doubleheaders and trade it around, share it around. And if not newish places that we go to, uh, let's really try and overserve folks. Uh, let's pick markets where IndyCar isn't uh, much of a thing. Street race, oval, whatever. Let's try and go to places. Uh, surely give them at least a double header, and who knows what else. But yeah, I'm with you on this one. Definitely with you, and the two of you together keep throwing in great ideas. Uh, we're going to go to our pal Ross Porter. Says MP with shorter weekends and a lack of practice time becoming the norm this year. It's been interesting seeing how different teams have responded. As Alexander Rossi stated in his podcast that the lack of practice time has really thrown a wrench in how his team is accustomed to understanding and improving the car throughout the weekend. Got me wondering how CFD, that would be computational fluid dynamics, and other simulation programs actually work and how they are used to prepare a good baseline setup to roll off the truck with. Are they strictly aerodynamic-focused programs, or can other variables also be put into these programs, such as suspension, gearing, engine mapping, ambient conditions, etc.? Says all the best to you, Chabrel, and those crazy cats. Well, thank you, Ross. So, yes to all the above. You have four primary simulation tools, and two of them are real, meaning real vehicle used in the simulation, other one real person used in it, and the other two are genuinely virtual. They are hundred percent computer generated so the two computer generated you mentioned cfd that's working on aerodynamics and yes cfd certainly gets used maybe less than it once was but yes for sure Uh, actual simulation computer based simulation that is where teams can and do absolutely use program that allows all the variables you've mentioned gearing this that the other arrow as well and will generate predicted lap times uh, will give you some benchmarking abilities or, or if not complete benchmarking abilities i should say against real lap times show you the simulated predicted gains and losses and where they are achieved um, see center of pressure changes, just general balance, a lot of different things. So this is where in the absence of being able to go to race circuit X, a road course, for example, and test for a day or two or three, as teams would often do back in the day before racing series got into things and really started restricting how much teams could go and test they would go to racetrack X and have a massive list of things they wanted to try. We are going to send the car out with 1,000-pound front springs and 800 rear springs. I'm just giving you random numbers here. And we are going to do this, and we are going to do that. And this is going to be the configuration of the car as we roll off the truck to get a baseline that we think is going to be decent And the driver will come back and tell them yes or no or maybe and decide whether they want to keep working down that direction with the springs, 
with the dampers on the car, with the aero configuration, the ride heights, the tire pressures, the cambers and casters, like all the goodies. Or if they decide, yeah, you know what? Uh, we let's try another baseline and another baseline. And there's going to be a lot of effort put in here to find directions. Throw in one other item here, Ross, just talking about one of the things that you have to safeguard against. And you'll hear teams talk about this in testing in particular. Let's use Sebring Short Course, which is the most common and popularly used place by teams. You will hear them all say, we are trying to learn a lot of things, but we are not trying to optimize the car for this track on this day. What does that mean? Every team could break the testing lap record at Sebring. I'm fairly positive. Almost every day that they test, if they wanted to, because they could hone in on every single thing that track demands of the car to go quickly and then just nail it. Well, the problem is they go to Sebring because they're going to learn a lot about the car. It's going to give them a pretty good idea on some street course stuff, uh, give them a little bit of road course stuff, but it's more of a, I guess, a generic track that they use as a baseline reference. But depending upon the heat of the day, whether it's crazy humid or not, the amount of cars there, how much rubber gets put down, lap times are going to be all over the place. And so what you get is teams saying, okay, we want to learn a lot of stuff. We're going to learn a lot of stuff, but we're not going to try and make the car perfect for this circuit we don't even race at on this day because that doesn't help us when we need to go to Long Beach or need to go to Mid-Ohio or wherever else. So when we're talking about CFD, strictly aero, when we're talking about SIM, as it's most commonly referred to, just that three-letter abbreviation, SIM, that is the pure virtual simulation of the vehicle lapping whatever circuit. And that's with all the things you've mentioned that they would input, just like they would on a real setup sheet if they were at that track and doing real testing there instead of simulated testing at that track and through doing that they can get some pretty good insights as to whether the setup ideas they have will or won't uh, get them closer to their goal but this is often a case where we're talking about the the starting setup baseline setups and such we're going to be talking about something that was run through sim and validated as being something they feel is going to be a good thing so the two real-world tests with real physical things, I'm not talking track testing again, but the, uh, the ability for teams to do this between races, well, you hear about the seven-post shaker rig. That's where actual IndyCar with a variety of damping uh, solutions, they've come up with a variety of dampers that they want to test, spring rates and such, uh, geometries and whatnot. This is where they take an actual car, to a seven post rig some teams ganassi and penske i believe are the two that i know of that have their own in their own shop uh, and run that car through simulated laps and that's what the seven post 
rig does those hydraulic rams bouncing the car pulling it up pulling it down tilting it and just putting it through all the simulated loads uh, as the uh, computer controlling the hydraulic rams uh, use an actual you know track map to create a pretty darn realistic simulation and so watching that car bounce and move and do all the things that it does i mean that's because it's being put through lap after lap after lap uh, of what those four corners of the car would be doing. And this is where they're looking at loads. They're looking at a whole bunch of data and validating whether this is something that is going to work in their belief or not. And the other one, the, the other real world test, and this is something where you hear drivers talking about, oh, I was in the sim, right? So when you hear engineers talk about sim that's usually again the full uh, computer-based only virtual version when you hear about drivers saying they were in the sim well that is the actual big multi-axis more hydraulic rams um, fake race car that they sit in with the screens in front of them Uh, while drivers often refer to that as sim uh, you'll hear the other acronym ross of dil and that stands for driver in the loop simulation. And so this is something where, uh, what I mistakenly, no, last week, uh, I called Colton Herta to ask if he wanted to be our guest and he didn't pick up after three or four rings. So I just hit stop. And, uh, he texted back and said, Hey, uh, call you back in a little bit. I'm, (laughs) I'm at the sim. And I'm like, well, Thanks. I really would not expect you to respond while you're sitting in the thing, uh, but you're a very nice person, so you did. That's him sitting in the uh, Honda Driver in the Loop simulator in Indiana and doing lap after lap after lap, trying different things. And so it really is the real world version, Ross, of that full virtual sim program. The difference being. The engineers sitting in the room behind the driver will say, okay, we are going to make this change to the car. Again, pick whatever it might be. Ride height could be a spring change. This is all virtual as well. But the feedback and what is happening as he or she is driving that car, they are feeling that change because the load on the steering wheel is different and how the car is moving and bucking and doing all of its normal things um, to best simulate what it is like actually racing on the track, that feedback is coming into the driver, and they're able to say, oh, I loved that. Boy, do you think we could go another 50 pounds on front spring or make this anti-roll bar change or, 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 or. And that's why they call it the DIL, driver in the loop. The driver is in, sitting in that car, the the world's most expensive home iRacing rig, and is in the loop, calling for changes, responding to changes, just really refining setup. And this is where we get these things that make the cars go faster and better. Last quick thing to mention here, Ross, before moving on. Uh, this is also a prized 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 thing among teams that do not have their own simulator and it's kind of sort of the fact that uh most don't so when you are negotiating with your uh, engine manufacturer 
on what you might be able to get as part of your lease. Uh, part of that these days is for sure days in the driver in the loop simulator because that absolutely helps and absolutely is going to make a team better driver better and so on. Um, these are all highly valued things. So being able to sit in there and do that, that is helping a team get better for the upcoming race. I remember last year, Sebastian Bourdais, after they didn't have the sharpest start to the year at Dale Coyne Racing. Um, I'm blanking a bit. Maybe it was Gateway. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. But uh, last year, there was the ability for the, him to go and spend a day, or maybe it was two, I don't know, in the driver in the loop simulator with Honda. And boy, they found a ton of stuff that they liked, applied it to the car, and there was a big jump in competitiveness just immediately might have been mid ohio whatever it was it was giant and changed the arc on the rest of their season for the most part that's just from being able to get it and spend time on the uh, dil so good stuff Uh, let's go to steve hunt question regarding restarts at mid ohio why were they done on the front straight not on the back straight as usual I distinctly remember the final restart in 2015 with Graham and Justin on the back straight. Uh, I think that changed not too long after Steve. So I could be wrong. Of course I usually am, but I think it's been a little while since that was done. Uh, JJ Gertler. How you doing? My man, JJ a little while back, he talked about the difference in overall balance between the Delara DW 12 and the Panos DPO one. Of course, Dan Weldon was a development driver for the DW12. He asks, what happened to the development after we lost Dan? Did they bring in another driver to continue the development process, or did they just kind of go with a recipe as they had it at the time, relying on future improvements to make it better? Ask, could the loss of the primary development driver account for some of the incomplete feelings of the car? Just took a sip of coffee there, y'all. Uh, the car was not good when it debuted. I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast. After the first day of driving, I mean, truly that day, like after he got out of uh, that first day in the car, I rang Danny Boy, and we had a good old conversation about things, some of it on the record, some of it definitely not. He could not and would not talk about the engine, was told you just can't, um, had a Honda motor in it. Um, yeah, he wanted to be positive for the sake of helping the sport, obviously, and worked his behind off with the team, the Brian Herta Autosport team, plus Delara, plus a lot of good folks to try and improve the package, and they did. I'd say keep in mind, JJ, that there is an inevitable handoff with a spec chassis. And I know that we lost Dan, well, obviously far too soon, but we lost Dan a month or two later after those initial tests. I don't know how much more he could have done. Simply because there was so much to do. And... You have the other aspect, too, of 
one highly respected voice saying, no, that's not right. That's not as impactful as 20 plus voices saying that's not right. And so we had a situation where the car was effectively kind of sort of mostly locked in and it really did need to move into the hands of team owners and drivers who went out and tested and they started firing in a ton of things, rapid fire of like, whoa, we got to do some stuff here to fix this and fix that. There's also, and again, this is nothing negative said about Dan, but every driver has their preference. And if the car happens to handle in the way that they like, they're going to have lots of positive things to say. If you have a driver who's preferred handling trait is not found in that car they're going to have nothing but complaints it's where having multiple voices and especially those who are known to have very different likes it's where this becomes valuable especially when you're trying to serve up a uh, a universal vehicle uh, that can be made to handle in the ways that everybody wants so i mean they're I guess where I'm I'm a little bit hesitant in trying to think of answers for this, JJ, there were enough conceptual problems with the car that made it into the prototype and even the finished initially distributed product that a lot of what teams had to do was just live with it. Dan could have said, all of these things are super wrong with it and they got to change before you mass produce the car. And there is going to be the inevitable cost benefit analysis where enough folks go. Yeah, I hear you. Can you live with it? Cause that's certainly going to help us keep the cost down and not have to pass all that on to the teams or just swallow it ourselves. So I'm not saying Delara did anything bad or shady or anything like that, but in the design phase with IndyCar, different regime than we have now, of almost completely different regime, uh, monkeying with a lot of stuff. We want this, we want that, change this, do that. Um, I've been told more than once that what Delara originally envisioned for the car was not very much the car that we got. And so it was this uh, donkey this designed by committee thing that ended up just not hitting really any target. <laughs> it's not like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It missed in these couple areas, but boy, it does this thing in amazing, amazing ways. I'd never heard that from anybody. Uh, so I don't know if I could put a lot of that on Dan, if any of it really, all the guy can do is give feedback on what someone else created and say, hey, you've lost the plot entirely here. You really need to come up with some options for us to try again. And the car was far enough away, JJ, to begin that it just Juan montoya itself. It was what it was. Uh, Matt Anderson, one of the things that was always fun to see as a fan of the Indy 500 and also made for good storylines and increased the car count was seeing one-off teams pull out one, two, or even three-year-old outdated chassis back in the day to try and make the field on a shoestring budget. says, once IndyCar brings out their new chassis, what do you think about the idea 
or at least uh, the first year or two of having the current chassis be eligible for the Indy 500 only. It says create a balance of performance formula that would be slightly favored towards the new chassis, but at least give teams uh, with low funding that want to come out for the Indy 500 a chance to field the car on a small budget by leasing or buying other teams' unused chassis and spares, along with their setup data uh, at a significant amount, than buying a new car and developing it themselves. Yeah, so I hear you, Matt. The and I just because I am a bit of a dick sometimes. The the line about create a balanced performance that would slightly favor the new chassis. Well, it's not a balanced formula then. That's uh, <laughs> if you've created a balancing formula that favors one thing over the other. It's not a balancing formula. Um, it just maybe means the old the old thing or the the unfavored thing isn't as quickly decimated as it would normally. I think we have maybe crossed that threshold, Matt, of the Richard Marshall racings of the world. And, you know, we had a little bit of that this year, but I think we might have crossed that threshold of team, little team, put something together on a shoestring, and are they going to get in? Last year, obviously, there were some big storylines. Dragon Speed, but they're still around. Uh, getting into the show, Hunkos Racing weren't there this year, unfortunately, but there are there are some shoestringy budget stories. I would say that if we are going to have a field of truly competitive team owners. They are going to have the newest chassis with the newest engines with new, 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 because that is what's needed to be most successful. That's going to leave a couple of spots, one row, maybe two rows to fill with smaller teams, privateers and, you know, upstarts and such. Could you possibly have them using older cars? Possibly. Would say that knowing the newer cars are going to have more power, going to have all kinds of things, you're just creating a situation where these are lambs that are going to be slaughtered if they even make the field. Depending on how many entries we're getting from the full-timers and such, with their second car, third, fourth, fifth, however many extra they might throw in. Um, yeah, it just seems like a lot of work, Matt, to try and come up with a unbalanced, balanced formula where we know for a fact all the full-time teams are going to be going to the new cars because they can't afford not to. They're going to lose their sponsors, lose their drivers, lose everything if they don't have an equal shot at winning. It's going to be expensive. We know that. There's no argument about that, but these things are never cheap. Uh, Never, never cheap. So I just say that back in the day, this was a lot of fun when the formula was the same. You had the new car with a Chevy or Cosworth or Judd, and maybe if you move into the earliest 90s, you can throw in a couple other manufacturers. But yeah, on occasion, we had the, oh, wow, that was a neat story about that old car, display car brought out of a museum or wherever, and 
They got it ready to run for the 500. Those were really cool stories, but that was at a time where you did not have two different formulas. What we're talking about here is putting two different formulas on track. And I can't see how that would be feasible or make great stories. Knowing that the older chassis would be at a, I would say, a pretty clear disadvantage. Uh, Ed Joris, you ask, what do you know about Logan Sargent, who finished third in FIA Formula 3 this season? I know little other than he's 19 and was born in Florida. So you say he was born in Florida, Ed. Uh, I know nothing of him. Really don't. The first time I heard his name was when our pal Lee Diffie mentioned him on a broadcast, IndyCar broadcast, I don't know what, a couple weeks ago, a month ago. And I think I did the cursory search and looked and learned a little bit about him. I don't know a thing. And obviously a root for him because he's an American trying to do things in Europe. That's longstanding tradition. Absolutely love it. Just don't really know him or have any attachment to him because I don't recall seeing much of him, at least in a feature capacity, on anything in kind of road to indie terms. So that's my ignorance, and I should fill that gap. So maybe I need to learn more about him. Uh, and I did also follow, you know, once Lee mentioned him, tried to follow him a bit. And what, I think I even watched one of his races through my Motor Trend app or something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, and saw that final race didn't go well, did not take home the title, unfortunately. But more for me to learn. Uh, we'll tell you, though, that, yeah, I'm kind of rooting for the kids that are over here trying to do big things in America first. William Matson says, Sting Ray Rob. What's with that name? Did he pick it himself or did his parents not like him? Talking about the current Indy Pro 2000 points leader, Stingray Rob. Great story here. They actually chose to wait until he was six years old, was nameless until he was six years old, William. And then, as you wrote, surprisingly enough, maybe you heard this from someone else, his parents let him name himself. So, amazing story. First time I've ever heard it. Uh, we're going to go to a grumpy bear suit guy, also known as a guy in a grumpy bear suit or a guy in a grumpy bear suit or a guy in a bear grumpy suit, a suit of a grumpy guy in a bear. Want some of those things, throw those words around, and that's at Dare Ruslar, good, good friend of the podcast on the Twitters. This is going to ask us one again. With the context of teams looking to expand, do you think Honda will shift one of their young drivers to the U.S. to further capitalize on the increasing popularity of IndyCar in Japan? Mentioned here, which I fail to mention regularly, that's why I call this my unpolished turd of a show, if you send in a question and you really like it and I don't get to it, send it in again. Send it in again, 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 if needed. The more hostile... You make the resubmissions, the stronger, 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 sure, likelihood it's going to get used. So, because, I mean, how could I not ignore those? Those are fun. Uh, Was on the phone today with Jay Fry, 
and he was giving me crap because I gave him a lot of crap in a voicemail. And he called and was like, well, geez, you're all emotional. What the hell's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, I'm giving you a hard time. He says, well, I'm giving you a hard time. I'm like, that's the way it works. Uh, give me a hard time and it'll help me perk up a little bit. Answered your question, I do. I would say the timing, though, is tied to one, Takuma Jehoshaphat Sato retiring. I think he has done enough to build that foundation you mentioned where it was lacking for a while. I think that there's just something that needs to continue in terms of having a really, really high-quality Japanese driver in the field. Now, whether that is from the motherland or Japanese-American, can't tell you. I'm wide open here. But I would hate to see our lack, a lack of a Japanese driver. I would hate to see that flag missing uh, once and whenever Takuma retires. Also, we'll mention here very freely, I would really want to see this for the sake of keeping uh, Hiro Matsumoto and, and just so many great Japanese photographers, um, reporters. They're the, the media from Japan that come here and produce content and just live and breathe Takuma Sato, 24 hours a day. It's phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Amano-san, good old Jack, he's been reporting here forever. Um, Just, this is a tradition I don't want to see broken as well. And without a Japanese driver, uh, I'll just say a Japanese-speaking driver, whether he or she is from Japan or Japanese-American or Japanese-whatever, it's really cool. It's really, truly, really, really cool. There's a guy who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, a massive, massive ties, roots in history, Philippines, China, Japan, Asian influence, just massive here. Like, this is normal to me. Totally normal to me. Some of you know, just sharing since we're on the topic. Uh, he wasn't a stepdad. He was like a surrogate father to me. George Obana, uh, Japanese-American, first-generation Japanese-American, his wife, Rose, Chinese-American. I mean, I might have spent more time at their house, out doing things at the gun range with George or working on his race car and and going to the track with him and whatever in my teens in the 1980s than I might have with my my actual old man, Marshall Pruitt Sr. So... This has just been a regular part of my life for a super long time. And while I haven't always been the biggest Takuma Sato fan, especially for the first six, seven years of his career here where he was hitting everything and embarrassing himself, uh, I've really just come to appreciate who he is, having found that really good, strong place and closing his career however much longer he uh, decides to go in a place of pride. And so I just don't want to see that right end. I want to see this continue. If we could have Takuma for another five or ten years, that'd be amazing. But whatever it is, I think you're onto something here. I think Honda uh, will have to, I think Honda has to see 
the value in maintaining this link between America and Japan. Lawrence Cunningham asked a question, and this is from last week. Rumors about fans at the Harvest GP. Obviously, we know that there will be fans. Tickets have been sold. I'm hoping it's going to be full in terms of the ticket limit. What I found interesting about this, and the reason I wanted to keep this and read it, I had a number of people reaching out a couple days before it was announced. And I'm not talking IndyCar insiders. I'm talking mostly fans. We're saying like, hey, I've heard from here or there or whatever that there's going to be fans. Have you heard anything? And I'm just sitting here like my normal idiot self going, uh, no, I haven't. And so, yeah, it was pretty awesome actually to see Lawrence and uh, some others and a lot of other folks who really kind of clued into what was happening here uh, well in advance of it being publicly announced uh james counter hey james says he's a medium-term listener to the indycar show first time question submitter well thanks james we normally get james on the uh weekend sports cars my other unpolished turd i do that with my pal graham goodwin uh james says mp what was the first indycar race uh after you retired uh what was it like was it a sense of relief or emptiness and so on that's a great question. I believe, believe the first IndyCar race I attended after I air quote retired following the 2001 Indy Racing League season was, did I drive down? I think I might have drove down or flowed down, flew down to uh, Fontana for the 2002 race. And I'm trying to think. So my old friend, former team co-owner, mentory type guy, management a little bit, Thomas Knapp. I think by the end of 2000, was it? Mid-2001, he'd been fired by John Menard. Thomas, while highly skilled on the things that involve race cars going around a circuit, uh, not much of a people person, unfortunately. I love the guy. Just, yeah, yeah, acquired acquired taste. Someone like a John Menard, he doesn't have to acquire any taste. I believe, yeah, let go, fired, whatever it was. And so as I recall, for the 2002 Fontana IRL race, he was there working with Kelly, Kelly Racing. And so trying to remember exactly what happened. I have a faint memory of being asked to spot. And so I was a spotter, I think, for, again, I'm, it's a little bit foggy. But it was, honestly, James, it was a weird thing. And I didn't, what made it weird is I felt like I didn't belong. Because I felt like this is a very, very private club private in terms of so few people get to do it if you are in the life doing this thing and i'm sure it's no different in indycar f1 whatever um did i say indycar formula one nascar whatever i'm fairly confident it's the same thing you're all competitors you may not like one another whatever but at least there's a level of respect that you're there and you're in the game and it's a very different thing it's a crazy demanding thing in your life there's just a bit of a sense that we're all doing this crazy thing together but the together thing really jumps out we're all doing this crazy thing together 
I remember rocking up whatever it was a year later. I don't remember the exact timeline of when Fontana fell in the calendar, but I just remember this feeling of walking around like, oh, yeah, I'm not really one of them anymore. And I don't know if anyone looked at me and said that. Uh, maybe if I felt it, it was more what was going on in my head than anything someone else did. But it did feel weird. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, what's the old joke about... Uh, or Stephen Wright's old joke about uh, losing your job. You know, I didn't lose my job. I know exactly where it is. It's just when I go there, uh, when I show up there, there's another guy doing it. It's a little bit of the feeling of like, oh, there are so few of these slots available. I had one for quite some time, dating back to kind of road to Indie-ish type stuff. Did that for 15, 16 years, however many it was, straight. And then willfully said, I'm good. I'm done. I just want to try living a, quote, normal life. Keep in mind that that was 2001 being the final season. 2002 was my first season, not season, being a normal guy, not working in racing. Happened to meet my wife that year. So pretty good call, I would say. Uh, But that feeling didn't really go away. And... I mean, I would go and do a lot of other stuff. I started doing a lot of driver coaching and engineering and fly-in stuff, usually more in the sports car angle, but also some road to indie type stuff. And that was fun. I felt, you know, a little bit out of place there too. Like, oh, well, I thought I kind of graduated this stuff, but here I am back doing the thing. Where things really continued in this term, you talk about was a sense of relief or emptiness. Um when I started doing this reporting stuff kind of mid 2006 ish for the first time, and then into 2007 and so on, I really felt out of place because I'm sitting there staring at the same tents that I'm used to walking into and getting up close and getting my hands dirty or walking into the transporter and going up to the top and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I can't. And I'm not allowed to because I'm not a part of any of those teams, even though that's my background and what feels normal. And now I have to stand out at the little, um, you know, the, the golden rope or whatever it is and hope to get waved in or allowed or whatever and feeling like, whoa, this is this is very different. Okay, get your head wrapped around this. Then I started to realize that, oh, well, okay, I can't just kind of walk in and do as I please like I normally would at a transporter, but I could start asking some questions that probably a lot of not, not a lot of other reporters would know how to ask because like, this is kind of what I did for the majority of my life, and so maybe that's what I need to do. And all of a sudden, it took a couple of years, but all of a sudden started feeling like, yeah, okay, I got my own brand here because I can be the guy who can write and report on stuff, but tell you things that very few can because of my background with the mechanic and engineer and management and all that stuff. I can go in and ask some questions that might be a little bit inside baseball. And maybe that's a newish or different angle I can share. So it was weird, James It's very weird, but I chose to do it. And I wanted to have a different life experience. And 
although it took a little while to become normal. Um, you know, the weirdest thing, probably the weirdest thing that jumps out was that first Indy 500 that I didn't attend, uh, that being 2002. And I think was Greg Ray on the pole. Uh, I don't remember one of my former drivers, whoever, whomever it was. I remember not really being sure what to do with myself because it had been a really long time since, yeah, I wasn't part of the show. And so I seem to recall saying, well, uh, I'm going to get up, drive to the local McDonald's. This is while I was living in Oakland um, with my girlfriend at the time. And I'm going to get some breakfast and drive back and watch the Indy 500. And you want to talk about emptiness. Uh, that was, that was a fail. That was not a celebratory way to view one's first Indy 500 after quote, retiring from the show. And yeah, I don't remember what I got, you know, a McMuffin or whatever, you know, hash browns or whatever it was that I got. I just remember sitting there eating it on the couch trying to think like, well, this, this must be kind of a normal thing, right? Um, uh, so I'm going to try and enjoy this as a normal person. And it just sucked. I don't know like what I needed to do. If it was go and get like really good breakfast from some place. And I'm not sure. I just remember sitting there in the drive through at McDonald's and being like, uh, I think, I think I'm failing on this one and getting home and realizing that, yeah, I completely failed. Um, and then I think Greg crashed pretty early into the race. So whatever. Um, there you go. Little, a uh, little bit of walk back into nothingness here. Let's go to JJ Gertler. Never heard of you. First time submitter, I believe. Says Marshall, need your help in figuring out where to put something. I want to open a national museum of the Hanford device. Can we put all the different Hanford devices on display? And even if they're all the same, there'll be a lot of them. So people will think they got good value for their entrance fee. Even better, if they're in a museum, nobody will be able to put them back on a car. For those of you who aren't aware, the Hanford device was a rectangular plate bolt made out of carbon fiber, bolted onto the back of the rear wings, Super Speedway configuration, uh, what, mid-late 90s in the CART IndyCar series, and it opened giant, giant holes in the air behind the cars. So cars were able to zoom past one another. At, like It felt like 50-mile-an-hour differences, and it was just nonstop passing. It was really amazing to observe the first time, second time maybe. By the third time, I recall being so bored with it because it was so cartoonish. It was like push to pass, but with 400 horsepower. Like just, you go, all right, uh, this is stupid. Um, so that's, for those who weren't aware, that's what he's referring to. The National Museum of the Hanford Device it says, I figure the museum will pull in visitors from farther away than it is reasonable, and they'll just get faster and faster as they get closer to it. See, that's why we love ourselves. And J.J. Gertler, he brings fun to our show. Uh, if we put the museum in Michigan, it can be right next to the memorial to the greatest and least embarrassing racing cart history, the 1996 U.S. 500. Or maybe it should go, uh, maybe it should go on some of the land that will be left over when Fontana gets converted to Bristol West. Just can't decide. Please help. Um, I, I like where you're going here. I'm not totally sure you've gotten the spot correct. 
I would say Hawaii. Yeah, it needs to go on the the air base section where the Hawaiian Super Prix wasn't held because of all the kind of mythical vaporware air poof type things. Why not the ultimate air poof type thing going where a tr- event really went poof and was never held? All right, so our good man, Tim Falkowitz, who puts together the questions in this Word document for me that I forgot to have open when we started the show because I'm an idiot, but I, again, hope that you accept this. Um, he draws a little line and says, you know, everything else you want to do after this is overtime. And so since we've got a lot of quick questions I think I can get to, this is the point where if you're thoroughly bored, and don't want to listen anymore. And we're, what, hour five, hour ten into this. I'll say super thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And thank you for listening. And now I'm going to keep going so you can listen some more if you want to. Maybe your question's in here, dear listener. Uh, Hire Lee. Got a question here from the Reddits. Hi, MP. I'm a 15-year-old IndyCar fanatic who is currently taking a career education class. I want to go the route of becoming a race mechanic or race engineer in motorsports, but I don't know how I could go about that. These dear friends and listeners are some of my favorite submissions. If you have them, whether it's the career angle or I just want to learn more how to do something, please send them in. If I don't have the answer, I will do my best to get it, but I'm all about trying to bring more of y'all into this sport. Uh, Hire, H-A-I-E-R, again, I screen names, read it, never know what's what, but we'll go with it, Uh, says, in class, we're often talking about what career we want to have and how to get there, but I simply don't know enough to answer these questions uh, to see a path for me to get an opportunity in motorsports, hoping to have some insight from a former mechanic. Absolutely. So, I don't know where in the country you happen to live. That wasn't included. But my first suggestion would be to look for whatever your local tracks might be. I would assume you know that. Uh, There tend to be a lot more short dirt track, paved oval type things. A lot more of those in the country than road courses. But nonetheless, you are going to be wanting to look for road courses. Because that is where, if we're talking becoming an IndyCar mechanic or race engineer you are going to spend the most of majority of your time turning those wrenches or making those engineering calls. With that said, you need to find where those road courses happen to be nearest to you. And I would recommend calling those tracks or that track and inquiring about, I said call, that's sorry, that's a little bit of an old thing. You could do that, it wouldn't be a bad thing. But you could also look up on the good old interwebs and find out when the Sports Car Club of America is having amateur races there. If there is a road course in the United States, pretty much guarantee you the SCCA, Sports Car Club of America, will be holding events there. And those racers are your neighbors. Uh, You probably have a friend or a classmate that you don't know about. They might not be in one of your actual classes, but at least in your overall class for the year, 
there's probably somewhere, someone in there that has a mom or dad that is racing in the SCCA uh, or a friend of a friend, whatever. There's going to be a link or a strand somewhere. NASA is another one, NASA, North American Speed Association, or National America, something along those lines. You're going to find SCCA or you're going to find NASA. You're going to find open wheel cars, sedans, GTs, a wide variety of things competing at a road course on however many weekends per year. My number one suggestion is to get out to some of those events. Might have to go with your parents. I don't know. Every state has age restrictions and limitations. I don't think there should be any issue with you getting in because you're 15, but being able to get, you know, pit lane, not going to happen. But walking around the paddock, getting to look at some of the cars, asking questions, just doing some really, let me get out, see the things, make some notes, write down some questions. Hey, what, sir, what is that? How does that work? You're probably going to have some folks that look up and grunt and don't answer. Ah, It's normal. Not everybody's super personable. Got to keep asking, though. And you're going to find the ones who are willing to answer. Hey, everything you just mentioned here, I'm 15. I'm an IndyCar fanatic. I want to be a mechanic. I want to be an engineer. How do I start? Where do I go? What do I do? Um, I'm trying to learn. That's a pretty awesome statement to make to anybody you're going to come across. I would hope more of them than less of them will take an interest and answer your questions. Uh, You might have heard me mention at 16, I got my start. This was through a family friend who was racing in a junior open wheel series. I didn't have much mechanical aptitude, but I had a desire. They only trusted me with a rag or paper towels and some Windex and brake cleaner made by Justice Brothers, one of our show sponsors, real thing, not a fake sponsor plug, real thing. Um, That's all they'd let me do. Don't touch a wrench. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no, no. We don't trust you at all. We don't know you. I mean, we know you, but we don't know you in terms of your capabilities and aptitude. So prove to us that you can clean things and clean them well and frequently and don't complain. And if you do all those things and you're doing them in a timely manner, you'll see us doing what we do, putting on suspension, taking off suspension, opening the gearbox, taking the ratios out, putting different ratios in, making wing adjustments and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, don't get in the way. Uh, Don't touch anything. But if you want to ask questions while we're doing it and it doesn't interrupt what we are doing, ask away. It's a bit of a earned, quite often, it's a bit of an earned thing. Come in, do the basic stuff that you're being tested, right? You might not know it at the time, but you're being tested. Hi, can this idiot, young guy, young girl, can this idiot do the very basic things we want them to? Um, And if you can, then great, we'll bump you up to the next level of responsibility and you know, before long, we might entrust you with a mop, might let you hold on to a broom. Um, you know, and it's just earning trust. 
and being that, you know, if we're talking about other sports, being that gym rat, being that person that's always around the gym, always just watching, observing, learning, picking up, trying to fit in where you can get in and, and whatnot. And that's often the way. Uh, there are some formal, I went to this school and learned this about racing type things that you can do. If we're talking mostly university level, there's the Formula SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers. Uh, there's some amazing Formula SAE programs. Look that up for sure. And these are all student uh, mechanics, designers, engineers. This is motor racing shop class on steroids. Amazingly fun stuff. You'll also find some current IndyCar race engineers participate in them and help their local university kids with some ideas or maybe some materials or whatever it is. But you know, there's still a couple of years away for you, but Formula SAE is definitely something to aspire towards. You're going to learn a lot there. But the best recommendation I can make, find that local amateur racing club, SCCA or NASA, Get there, see things, have your mind blown, make a lot of, take a ton of photos, uh, ask a lot of questions, try and make some friends, and hopefully someone who you ask, could I help and volunteer at your next race? Or if we live somewhat close enough, can I volunteer and help, you know, as you need to get the car ready for the next race? Um, Keep asking, keep asking, and open that door. Folks aren't going to open it for you. This is a persistence thing. You need to be the one doing the asking. They're not, not everyone's going to trust you. But your curiosity here, enthusiasm, and attention to detail, like those are things that are <laughs> in short supply in IndyCar. Uh, I'll close here by mentioning good friend of the show, Mike Hull, managing director of the Chip Ganassi Racing Team. One of the conversation themes that he and I have, not every phone call, probably once every five to ten phone calls. And we usually speak at least once a week. Um, you know, once a month, once every two months, the topic will come up raised by Mike as someone who runs a big and successful racing team for chip there aren't enough qualified people knocking on our door there's a lot of folks who dream and desire to be a race car mechanic engineer whatever but there just aren't enough qualified folks and what he means by qualified it's an interesting thing here it isn't necessarily, oh, you've won X amount of championships on the road to Indy, or you are a known IndyCar person who's knocking on our door. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about new folks wanting to come in who haven't covered off enough of the fundamentals and basics to be able to be either immediately valuable or pretty close to valuable after coming to work. So that means while you might not have IndyCar experience, if you have 
spent that time, learned how to be an ace race car mechanic, maybe know a little bit about the engineering side, understand the systems a bit. You know, there's a lot of systems on the car, whether it's electronic, hydraulic, pneumatic, all kinds of things, lots of icks on the car. Uh, someone who you can tell really knows their stuff, knows computers, knows software, knows spreadsheets, knows inventory and tracking, uh, can be asked to do things that involve getting one's hands dirty, going typity type on a laptop or similar inputting information about inventory, uh, lifing of parts and such. Just you know, are you coming in as a one trick pony uh, who needs us to fill in all the big voids in what we want you to be? Or are you someone who's really worked super hard thinking that I want to do this, I dream of doing this, and before I knock on that proverbial door at Chip Ganassi Racing or countless other teams in IndyCar, how ready have I gotten myself so that I'm not a liability or a project? Okay, well, yeah, you know, this kid's got a good this or good that, but I can see that, you know, it's going to take us six months or a year or longer to get him up to speed on some of these other areas. You're going to help yourself if you find a team or teams. Again, who knows how often some are running in your area, but to volunteer with, to learn from. And as you get more and more settled and know more, you're going to meet more people who are going to hopefully know more people and getting onto that road to Indy, learning there. Uh, these are all things that... I'd strongly recommend those first steps, the SCCA or NASA level. And if you have more questions, send in more questions. And my email is not exactly a top secret thing. If you want to DM me or otherwise, you know, happy to help. And for any of you who want to get into motor racing, at least in the areas I would know from me doing it, or at least what I can describe to you of watching those doing things I haven't done, um, I'll do my best. Uh, let's go to Gay G G G Jertler. I think is the person's name. Uh, says if you need any new question, here's one. With Scott McLaughlin now scheduled for St. Pete, do you have any idea whether Penske is also considering the currently very hot Austin Cindric as part of their future IndyCar plans, or are they likely to keep him in taxi cabs? Um, taxi cabs is where he will race. I captured a podcast with Austin two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's a bit of a blur. I need to put that up. I like that kid. I've known him for a fairly decent amount of time. And yeah, I'm really happy to see him flourishing in the way that he is. But I know of nothing. Even he said, like, yeah, me fitting in one of those things might be a little bit of a challenge. More of a challenge than I want. But I know nothing, uh, Mr. G.G. Jertler of Austin doing the open wheelie thing, even though uh, he really showed his early potential in USF 2000. Was it the Night Rain sponsored car? I think his brother's uh, urban wear company or whatever it was. So, uh, Sean Lee, what makes a driver fast? Not the car, not the team, but the person themselves. Hmm. Great question. How much time you got, Sean? 
Uh, we could spend a long time on this. Hand-eye coordination is one. Uh, without that, you are not a fast race car driver. Aggression doesn't have to be red-faced, screaming, whatever type aggression, but a mental thing that is constantly saying, go, 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 push, 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 never relax, right? That's the intensity of that. The mental intensity of that can be something that leads drivers to retire sooner than maybe we would think they should because maintaining that hunger and aggression to just knock down the world and destroy everything in front of you on each lap, every corner, every braking zone, accelerating, and you do that for enough years, there comes a point where, just tell you, it comes with age where you go, I don't know if I want to have to hype myself up into that and trick myself into that. I think of a someone like a Pato Ward, right? Young challenger like Pato, where he, his brain is just always, you know, I want to be 100 feet farther up the road than I am now. Go, 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 go. Colton, same way. And it's not like, you know, a uh, 30-ish guy like Joseph Newgarden or whatever is no longer that way, or a Will Power or a Scott Dixon. They haven't necessarily lost that. If anything, it's probably become a little bit more normal, but there is a point in life where everyone says, God, the intensity of this, having to ramp myself up. Uh, I don't know if I have that last tenth or two uh, on the stopwatch because maintaining that level can be a challenge. Uh, so beyond the hand-eye, beyond the mental aspect, education, right? the, the, the ongoing curiosity, the ability to learn, pick things up and adapt both the technical side, right? Knowing what you want the car to do, how to make it do it by the setup changes you call for. That's a big thing as well. Um, adaptation, which I mentioned is part of that. That's also a huge part of the driving experience, right? We know all the things of tire degradation, of fuel load burning off, of Whatever it is, tire pressure is being right or wrong, the car handling different, having to adapt is a the ability to adapt is another thing that makes a driver fast. And I, when I'm talking about fast, I'm talking the elite, right? Every IndyCar driver is fast. <laughs> the worst IndyCar driver in the grid right now would decimate you, me, and 99.9% of the rest of us because even though they are garbage compared to the top couple of drivers, if not the midfield, they're still so much better, so much more experienced, so many laps, um, they'd embarrass the rest of us. So I'm talking about real speed. Um, that adaptability is huge. It really is because from that you get consistent speed consistent performances there are some drivers who if the car is not handling in a certain way we know they're not going to be overly effective and there are others who seem to be somewhat blind or numb or otherwise and can make seemingly anything go quickly it's a huge huge thing Uh, last one that comes to mind it's a little bit of an intangible thing but it's sensory perception and receptors, 
It's the ability to feel. And when I raced, and I didn't do a ton of racing, but when I raced in Formula Fords, raced a GT car, have raced a handful of things, I didn't get to do it enough, and I didn't get to do it for very long. One of the things that I had a bit of a feel for and was developing was feel for the car, what it was saying, what it was telling me that it wanted. But good Lord, I mean, that is something that is, it's the primary thing that makes a driver, gives the driver the ability to be fast. You are not in control at all times behind the wheel. You are having to listen to the car in a voice that hopefully is very loud and demonstrative, telling you what it wants and needs to make it through the next corner. And for others, say myself included, those vo- that voice was very quiet because I hadn't done enough racing to really develop it and hear the car and, and feel it and what was the sensations coming through my ass and my shoulders and my hands and my feet and all the things, my eyes, obviously, and ears connecting all these things that are giving inputs at, at whatever frequency rate, however many hertz, hopefully a lot of hertz, telling me what the car was doing and therefore how far away I was from the limit or if I was at the limit or going over or about to, that's the thing that makes a race car driver an athlete. You can take all the physical training, the strength training and building of muscle, the cardio endurance, the yeah, all those things that we know you're going to find in your favorite football, basketball, baseball, hockey, whatever. All those things are shared between race car drivers and stick and ball performers and whatever else. The thing that makes a race car driver unlike, I believe possibly any other athlete is that crazy. Hi Rosie, our cat Rosie's joining us is that insane ability to blend so many points of input and come up with lightning fast precision and consistency, repeatability. So if we think about quarterback looking to throw a ball, looking to get it to a receiver, running a route, obviously there's a lot of obstacles, a lot of folks trying to tackle that quarterback, all these things that we know. There are folks trying to prevent the receiver from receiving the ball. and All these things that we know, we know that there's math, there's physics, there's Plenty of things at work with a quarterback having to track where that receiver is going. Quarterback is often moving in the pocket, having to throw the ball as Rosie jumps over my shoulder and walks in front of the mic. Thank you, girl. Um, Race car drivers have to do this constantly. There is no real catch and then whistle being blown, play being over, everyone huddling back up to run another play. It is this crazy thing where it is math, it is physics, it is 
all kinds of earthly and unearthly forces having to be processed through one's eyes, through the brain, through muscles, through everything telling you what is going on and what you can or can't do to remain in control, to be at the limit, to constantly perform at the limit. It is this amazing, crazy thing that is unlike any other sport I can think of, where we have drivers, especially these peak drivers, who are constantly moving at high rates of speed, having to evaluate, reevaluate their braking points, turn-in points, all with, I don't want to say millimeter precision, because that might be a little bit much, but insane amounts of precision every lap. The car is changing, little tiny fraction every lap, but over a handful of laps, it's certainly changing and changing and changing. They're having to adapt. It might not break as late as it did. It might not put down the power as well as it did. It might not do many things that it did as well at the beginning of the stint. It might be doing it better. Who knows? But constant adjustment. And also, here's the fun part. There's 20-plus other people all doing the same thing. Many, usually one or more, trying to take something away from you, take ground away from you, take a corner away. It's, it's just this insane thing. So the mental computer, the mental processing rate, the always never-ending need to evaluate what you have in terms of grip, the balance of the car, the ability for the car to do things that you want it to do without spinning, without crashing, without taking out others. This hand-eye coordination, the mental processing speed is another one. This all fits in the same category. But the mental processor, how fast your brain is able to process all these things, it's nuts. And so that's not wanting to take away from any other sport. I love many other sports. The thing that most people talk about when they first get to do laps in an Indy car, coming from Indy Lights, coming from wherever, is, oh my God, the acceleration compared to what I normally drive is just out of this world, totally insane, cannot handle it almost i gotta pull in and see if my brain will catch up and there comes a normalization process in this at some point sean hopefully sooner than later where drivers are able to have their brains process the insane amount of feet that they travel per second and have it become something that their brain can catch up with and you will sometimes hear drivers talk about being ahead of the car. That's the ultimate state they're all going after. Yes, they might be turning into turn one at 170 miles an hour. Their brain, though, is processing at a speed that might be 180 miles an hour, 185, so that when they turn in and the car reacts however it does, behaves however it does, they're not in a mental reactive state their brain is processing going off of what happened the last time they went through that corner predicting what might happen this time and before they've even turned the wheel 
stepped on whatever pedal, they are ahead of the corner, ahead of the car, possibly even feeding in a little bit of opposite lock if they think that it might slide based on the increase of speed they have through the corner this lap compared to the last. It's That's the beautiful place you want to get to. But imagine having to do all your favorite sports at 3, 5, 10, 20 times the speed and there being no breaks between plays. You just scored a basket, great, side out, whatever out, take the ball in, okay, run another play. Uh, There's no waiting between batters coming up to the plate. I mean, it's just constant at an insane level of speed where your brain is being taxed the whole time. Your body is one giant receptor, feeling everything, seeing everything, weighing and evaluating how the steering wheel feels through the corner compared to how it did before, maybe the lap before or 20 laps before. Your foot, your feet, your brake pressure modulation, your throttle modulation, how moving your foot on the throttle induces some torque, turns the car, twists the car a bit, how you feel that through the tires, how you feel the tire react. Is it accepting this force? Is it wanting to spin the tires uh, forward? Or are we sliding laterally? All these little micro inputs happening at a, again, zillion miles an hour in your brain having to process it all, keep the thing on track, be running at the absolute limit, and deal with 20-plus crazies around you. These are the things that make a truly elite driver fast. Any one of us can get into an Indy car at pick the track, uh, Road America, and come around the final corner at walking speed, get it pointed straight, and mash the throttle and just flick through the gears and feel like we're superheroes. And we go screaming towards turn one at 170 miles an hour. And ah, it's amazing. Oh my God. And then you damn near flat spot and blow all the tires because you break hundreds of feet earlier than you should. And with 10 times the amount of force that you should to bring the car back down to a crawl and just kind of, uh, maybe you coast through turn one or just brrr, give it a little bit of throttle and you get through it. Oh my God, I survived. And here's a straight part where I know I can't mess that up. And you get back on the throttle and you go straight for a little while. And then way before the braking markers ever appear, you're on the brakes again and you kind of fart and float through the next corner. Anybody can do that. Those who have done a bit of racing can do that better than the average person, but it is still, you're not going to be seeing folks get within 10 seconds, 15, 20 seconds of the car's capabilities. You can get those who are very good, and there are only a couple that we would say are very good that are currently in IndyCar. The rest of them are definitely good, if not great. There are a couple where you go, yeah, they're two, three seconds off, maybe two. It's, I mean, it's a lifetime compared to the ones who are on pole or on the first couple of rows. 
But that person <laughs> who's only two seconds off, who's at the back of the field, dead last, worst in the field, is a legend in terms of skill and capability compared to what the rest of us are capable of doing. So a lot of things, Sean, that make a driver fast. Uh, there are some things we're exceeding in those areas in ways that others don't. You have to really, truly question where they get it because their ability to live in that kind of undescribable unicorn based world where you go, how do you do that? Most human being, like the average human being cannot do that. Ah, oh, okay. That's why you are, you know, pick your favorite athlete. Yeah. That's why you're the LeBron of IndyCar, the Brady Mahomes, whatever, of IndyCar. That's why you are, aha, everyone's kind of sort of equal in an IndyCar. You don't have to be tall. You don't have to be wide. You don't have to have physical attributes that allow you to be excellent in some of the stick and ball sports. Um, but, oh, there's some cognitive things here. There's some fast twitch muscle things going on. But wow, really, truly the brain of a race car driver, um, that's the huge differentiator uh, with what makes an amazing race car driver from a very average race car driver. So there you go. Hey, it's our pal Stathis Coco, who usually sends in great stuff for the sports car show. He says, is IndyCar evaluating a new car design for the future? Yes. Maybe alongside the new generation engines? Yes. Uh, says the current car is stunning, but the aero screen looks like it's just placed there rather than designed as a whole with the aero screen. Also true. It says hashtag me personally, the low oval drag kit uh, looks weird with the aero screen. Uh, you're just absolutely getting nothing but yeses from me here, Stathis. Yeah, uh, looks better for sure with road course wings and kind of, Every, a lot of uh, accents and flourishes around it. Stripped away with tiny speedway wings, uh, front and rear. It does make the aero screen pop out and look a little bit. That's why I refer to it as a fishbowl. just looks like a large, wrapped, rounded, rectangular fishbowl sitting up there. Uh, yeah, I would say the engine side is far, far more along for sure than the chassis side. Uh I, I know this to be a absolute fact. So one of the many things I'm trying to stay on top of without being too much of a pain in the butt and too questioning and intrusive, because I know they're not there yet on the chassis side. I know they're thinking about it, uh, but it's also, yeah, uh, I'd say another victim of COVID. I'd say they'd be much farther along there if not for a lot of issues over the last, what, six months? Seven months, is it now? Yeah, I mean, October's almost here. How crazy. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, never heard of you before, says, Mid-Ohio was good racing. People should go see races at Mid-Ohio when there isn't a pandemic. It isn't Road America, but it has to be a close second, as long as you don't need to use their restrooms. I mean, it, what other reason would you go to Mid-Ohio than to use the restrooms? It's If you ever wondered at what it was like to be a, 1800s cowboy <laughs> that's 
pretty close to the it it's very much stall like like you know like just kind of some wood thrown up and yeah i mean the fact that there aren't spittoons all around the floor um and people with you know pistols hanging off of gun belts and whatnot yeah uh oh internet too i know crazy thing um yeah i won't get into too much but i I had a call with a friend today who said that they have changed the scheduling for some significant announcements that were meant to be done originally planned to be done at mid-ohio during mid-ohio race weekend changed those plans altogether moved it to a midweek revealing because they realized the internet access stability everything is so questionable and ongoing questionable forever that they weren't totally sure that the reporters in place would be able to get their stories out and or just communicate effectively so yeah uh so there's that uh yeah hey i'll double this one as well if you aren't going to road america if you are going to road america and you've never been to mid-ohio go to mid-ohio it's an amazing circuit and what makes it amazing beyond the course itself it's the people it really is same as road america same as many tracks it's not like you go to some trash like oh everyone's just a jerk uh just mid ohio is one of those places that stands out for you want passionate people who love them some motor racing and it's kind of a camping type event whether whether you're there for indycar imsa nascar xfinity whatever no this year's a little bit different but still it's just normally a place where a bit of a communal feel hey let's go camping and race cars and so it's a lot of hey come on over and have a beer have a whatever with us it's really cool um if you if y'all haven't been there i hope you do go uh let's see jamie carr talking about the race to start from mid ohio am i the only one that thought ferrucci's drive through the grass reminded uh me of greg moore's start in portland in 1998 i don't know jamie i love that you remember that i truly dream of having a memory that sticks as well as yours but it doesn't so i'm just gonna go with you on this one and say maybe some others thought of that i know i didn't and that's just because my brain not always good dan glass dan glass at texan ombre look at that i gotta remember to read more of your social media handles twitter and reddit in particular any word on how Roger Penske feels about NASCAR taking his old, grand, and amazing Fontana and turning it into something minimal? I'm curious if he still has any attachment to his old track. Also says, best wishes to you. Um, and have you ever considered giving the cats catnip? Well, I think we used to a little bit, but they roll around and act like they're just super cracked up. And yeah, they run around enough and act super cracked up so we stopped doing that i you know the thing about roger 
He is sentimental about big things. And I guess you could say, well, wouldn't a two-mile oval or whatever that he built be something to be sentimental about? I'm I'm speaking more achievement. Hey, it's our 50th anniversary. Hey, we've done this a bunch of times, whatever. That's where you get him into sentiment a bit. I don't know Roger to be the kind of guy, though, who would look at something like downsizing Fontana and have any real major thought about that other than, oh, well, if it brings more fans, then great. But, yeah, he's he's really and truly not a rearview mirror guy. If there's something that's going to help to make he, the team, the whatever better, sure. After that, eh, you're not going to get too far with RP in that regard. Let me see where we're at on the old timeometer, also known as watch. Yeah, we're at about two hours. I want to try and cut off around two hours. So let me blast through a couple. Actually, it's the last stuff that we have. Um, Gary Chin, Marshall, I was going down memory lane and thought about Team Penske's chassis program. Do you know any background about the Penske-Renard hybrid chassis, or am I misremembering? As a matter of fact, Gary... I do know a lot of background about it, so much so that if you open the brand new issue of Racer Magazine, you will find a feature titled Rensky, uh, which I am so thankful Racer Editor Lawrence Foster asked, asked me to pen that and gave me some extra words and a lot of extra words, so it was able to breathe a bit more. So Tim Sindrick was... Mighty, mighty fine in delivering some good background quotes and anecdotes. Spoke with Gilles DeFerrin. Spoke with Tom German, who is technical director at Rahal Letterman Lanigan these days, but was Team Penske's technical director back then, and also, I believe, DeFerrin's race engineer. Trying to think who else I spoke with. I feel like I might have interviewed, I don't know, one or two other people. Whatever, however many, I would say I'm really proud of that piece, and it turned out quite well, thanks to those that I interviewed and Lawrence. So I do remember, and I would strongly recommend visiting racer.com and either subscribing to the print magazine or subscribing to the digital or both and reading it. So, yeah, that consumed... Between phone calls for the interviews and writing and photo sourcing and looking at a whole bunch of stuff, that whole 1,800 or so word feature probably consumed 20 hours of my life. So, yeah, about half a work week uh, all combined, which for those of you that write, you might realize that 1,800 words, not a huge amount, but yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, Race Harnesses, Kevin Perez Frederico. Hey there. Uh, mentioned seeing different brands of driver race harnesses used, that being the six-point belting system inside the vehicle. Noticing seeing Sparco on Felix Rosenquist, Simpson on Alex Rossi. Was curious about Takuma Sato and the green Takata brand belts, says he's a huge fan of Takata since they're big into time attack and drifting. Um, was curious, is it a driver preference thing, personal sponsorship deal, team deal? Uh, Many t- 
times, majority of the times, it's a team thing. If you have a veteran driver who has used a particular thing that they really like throughout their career, such as a belt vendor, that might be a thing that gets changed when they come to a team. By and large, it's the team that has a relationship, sometimes a sponsorship deal, and that is why those items are on the car. Now, I'm not saying that this is the specific case with a Michael Andretti or Chip Ganassi or whomever, but it's also not totally a strange concept to have a former driver who is now a team owner or similar, a team manager or whatever, that used belt brand X back in the day and has a loyalty and affinity to it. And for that reason and that reason alone, they have those items on their cars. So could be business deal, money changing hands, could be free, could be just old love for whatever brand, could be the driver saying, I like these, they, uh, they fit me well, they've done me well in crashes, whatever, whatever. So there you go. Uh, Joey the Priuses, oh, here we go. Marco Andretti qualified pretty well at Mid-Ohio, especially with a gamble on slicks in the wet. Unfortunately, he converted these good results into 23rd and 20th places. Uh, I know we've been piling on the guy lately, but it keeps getting worse. This is the thing, Joey. If we didn't love the guy, and I know not all of you do, but I'm just assuming for whatever reason, if we didn't care about the guy, we wouldn't be upset or disappointed. We know that he has the potential, reverting back to Sean Lee's question, we know that he has the potential within him, within his body, within his brain, within everything, to be the fastest upon the fastest. But then you also got to separate qualifying a little bit and say, but how do you perform in the race? What mistakes do or don't you make? Uh, yeah. You got to look at a thing and be honest at what you see. And if you have 15 years of, if we're talking, you know, school grades, getting C's, if you've been a C student for 15 years, on occasion, one year, two year, you might be a B, B plus, but you more often than not revert to a C, could be a C minus, might even be a D plus. Uh, you, you can't just say that that's random, right? I mean, that's data, that's real numbers, that that's real stuff, time-proven, time-honored. It just makes me sad because I know the potential is there. We all know it. We have the same discussion. I should just record it and just drop it in, um, put some old scratchy, you know, timey effects on it so it sounds like it was done on a cassette back in the day, but yeah. Let me just throw this in because it occurred, and whenever I get a chance to mention this, I want to. So for whatever reason, I decided to go with school grades and mention C's and D's with Marco. So my best friend growing up is a kid named Amir Sabiri, Iranian-American. And he's the funniest damn guy I've just about ever met. Amir had me just 
all we did was laugh and say stupid stuff and just delightful. Truly can't tell you how much I loved Amir. And while he was super smart, he did not apply himself. He and I were also very similar. Might've been why we were really super best buds because I'm not saying I was super smart, but I know that I didn't apply myself as much as I should. Well, he and I were in the same class. I think this was English class. It was our last class of the day, and this was sixth grade. So we were meant to graduate and move on to junior high. And so it was our last class of the last day of grade school for Amir Sabiri and little Jeff Pruitt. And got our grades and she asked Amir to wait till after the class. And so I had gotten my grade and I guess however they did it back then, it wasn't like a printed out report card. Uh, it was kind of went to class by class and they gave you your grades when you got to each one, this would have been like 77, 1976, 77, whatever. Um, and it was, more or less the pass go do not pass go kind of thing to move on and i don't think it was really a concern for anybody amir was certainly insanely smart but he just was not very good at doing homework and giving a fart about the english class so joey last day last class should have been the final casting off grade school we're going to become vaguely almost a couple years away from being teenagers we're going to junior high and boy this is going to be amazing and so being amir's best friend uh, when the teacher said for him to wait and realizing that she had not given him his grade as she did the rest of us kind of put a couple things together and said oh this might be an issue and so no kids left everyone had left it's just he and i and she said amir you didn't do your homework. You didn't do this. You didn't do, I had to give you a grade that reflected what you honestly earned. And so I remember he and I kind of looking at each other side. eye, like, okay, so what you about to say? So I've given you an F plus. <laughs> and it like, I don't know how old you are at this point. Right, nine, ten, whatever. No, it wouldn't have been seventy-seven. Jesus, I'm way off on this. Um, I don't know, late seventies, uh, nineteen eighty, maybe something like that. Um, he and I just started like try. We were just fighting so hard not to crack up because the absurdity of what the teacher said, and she picked up on the absurdity as soon as she said it, was that you're failing you're clearly failing but you're failing well so i'm gonna give you an f plus <laughs> ah, my buddy amir got an f plus and it killed him and killed me and we're we but we knew how serious this was so we're fighting back you know we weren't fighting back tears from crying but it felt like oh my god this is the funniest thing ever and so she and i don't remember her name but i do recall thinking she was awesome she just looked at him and said look 
I'm going to give you a D minus. And however she said it, I don't think she cursed, but I kind of think she might have. In roundabout way, she said, I'm going to give you a D minus because I don't want to see your monkey ass around here next year or have to deal with you for another year. So I'm going to change your grade so you can go to junior high so I don't have to deal with your ass anymore. And he and I, I think that's where he and I just started busting out laughing, and she started laughing too. It was just the three of us. The absurdity was the best thing in the world. I just, I'm telling you, Joey, I have an old friend. I haven't spoken to Amir in 20-plus years, but I grew up with somebody who got an F freaking plus. So I just felt like sharing that. You might have heard me share it once before back in the day. Who knows? I don't know if there's any parallels to Marco, who I really like. Uh, but yeah, man, um, uh, let's see. Cody DW 12. Yes. Question about the international, the IGTC eight hour event happening, uh, at IMS while COVID's going on with Indy GP stuff. And, um, I don't know, man, uh, I don't have an intelligent answer to provide. Uh, getting down to the last couple of questions. Yeah. Jordan Darwin. Hey, Jordan. How you been, man? It says, MP, how often do you piss off someone in the garage? Uh, a lot, I would have to imagine. That's a byproduct of doing what I do, being a reporter. Uh, <laughs> it's, I don't, I think it's rarely, if ever, intentional. Um, yeah, I don't know if I fully know how often, but I'm, I mean, I assume half of the people hate me. I don't want to say the other half love me because that would be a bit presumptuous. Part of this is just normal stuff in doing this job. And I don't say that in any kind of good way, cool way or otherwise. I know for a fact that when I worked for racing teams, uh, especially IndyCar teams, I hated. Now, granted, most of this was print uh, back in the day, but still some of it was a little bit of interwebs. But you hate reading, oh, so, oh, shit, my team might be running out of money, or there's rumor that people might be splitting, or driver might be, I'm like, those things never make you happy. Most people in life, Super generalism alert here. Most people in life want to feel stable and secure at all times. And when you learn things that say, hey, these people's lives here might not be stable and it's your job to report these things, it's only natural for those folks to not like it and then fairly normal there being some sort of backlash against the person who wrote it, the kill the messenger thing. And so as I have done this profession longer, Jordan, I would like to believe I have a much better grasp for how to manage such things. Um, I can tell you that before I had learned all the, ways to do it better i might not have put as much thought into such things ahead of time 
uh, hey, this is a news story that's been confirmed by two or more sources. I know it to be true. It's a real thing worth writing about uh, in this sport. So here's the story. And you just know that it's going to make some people happy, some people sad, some people are going to just give you the evil eye when you see them next, some, you know, whatever. You know all range of reactions and emotions are going to happen when you choose a profession where you're the messenger. And although they shouldn't shoot you, it's part and parcel. So what I would, you know, I think I'm going to close with this just because, yeah, uh, all the other questions that I'm seeing below it are ones that we've covered before. And just close here on this topic quickly, Jordan, to say that as we speak tonight at 10.23 p.m., I had to take some time away, by the way, to go help my wife with something. Um, as we speak here at 10.23 p.m., I am sitting on one, two pieces of what I consider to be significant-ish IndyCar news. Um, one of them, I don't think the team's crew members know about. I think they'll ultimately be okay when this news comes out. I might not be the one to break it. Someone else might get to it before me. Uh, I've been asked to not put it out right now. So, again, not a problem there. But I'm not sure how the team members on that team will feel when they learn about what it is they may or may not be doing next year. Uh, And so there you go. That's normal, but it's also something I try and keep in mind with any of these stories like this. Uh, I have learned about, I don't know if any of this is, I don't think any of it's 2021 type stuff yet, but I can say for sure I've known in the past when a driver that I'm on the phone with or speaking to in front of me is going to lose their job. Uh, I know it. I have been told it. It has been it has been confirmed, or I have been given the information by someone in the know under the guise that I absolutely keep it to myself. And you want to tell them, buddy, uh, go talk to so and so. You're going to need. You're not going to have steady income two months from now. You want to do that, of course, but you can't. And sometimes you know about mechanics. Sometimes you know a team is going to downsize. And, you know, uh, not all these things happen in a total vacuum where everyone's blindsided or surprised. There'll be a whisper, a hint, a something. And, you know, you might get that call. Hey, have you heard what we're doing next year? Because there's some rumblings and rumors internally here. You do your best if you can answer however you can, provided you're not under embargo or haven't been sworn to secrecy. But I just mentioned these couple of scenarios, Jordan, because being in the information trade business, that's part of being a reporter. You got to learn things. You know, I don't get the call. (laughs) Hey, we're going to, we're going to make this major announcement tomorrow. We want to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, all about it. And uh, you just go ahead and run it whenever you want. Like, that doesn't happen. (laughs) You might get the, hey, here's an embargoed thing for tomorrow. And if you agree to the embargo, then we'll send it to you. Um, 
you know, the Scotty McLaughlin news. Um, I learned about it a couple hours before it became a press release of him becoming the fourth driver at St. Pete. I had actually written the story, but it was a speculative story because I understood that it was at least a couple days away from coming out and sources, multiple sources and yada, yada, yada. And cool. Just straight up a uh, new story that I'm writing, uh, was going once we got to our physical therapy session, uh, was going to call the team and ask for a comment. Can you comment? Usually you get a no comment or decline to comment or whatever, whatever. Uh, but knew that the story was accurate and, yada 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 in the time between leaving home and driving the half hour plus to physical therapy uh it was a news story published by team penske and well all right well made things kind of easy for me i got the story mostly written now i got to do is bolt in a couple quotes and off we go uh you know if i had written the story without uh before it had been official and although I would have spoken to someone from the Penske side and they would have known that I had the story and they probably would have given a no comment or otherwise, would that have pissed off a few people? Sure. Always does. Everyone wants to control every piece of news and make sure that folks like me never get it because most people are control freaks. Um, if I just didn't do my job and waited for press releases to show up, no one would have a reason to employ me because I wouldn't be a reporter. I'd be a cut and paster. So, you know, it's just part of the trade, man. Uh, I don't, I don't know. It's a totally neutral statement. Um, it's cool when you have folks that enjoy your work within the domain that you work, but I can absolutely tell you walking up and down pit lane, it's a constant heat check. It's either super warmth uh, or I have no idea who you are and what are you and ignorance and or apathy. And then you get the super frosty F you, screw you, you just wrote something or two years ago you wrote something that really pissed me off and uh, although we don't know each other, I'm going to stare daggers at you. Eh. Uh, they're easier things to do for a living where you don't have to worry about the human condition. So I guess I made a bad choice if I just wanted to be loved by everybody. So speaking of love, thank you, my family here, for sending in everything. This is going to be the only listener Q&A episode of the week, and it's about all I got, friends. So I still, as of Monday night, haven't decided who I'm going to ask to be our guest. I'm thinking Jack Harvey, um, not because they ran stickers with my wife's support on it, but just seems like a guy who's been there, thereabouts all year, but hasn't really had the type of multiple breakthroughs I was expecting. So yeah, might have Jack the Baker. Uh, I don't know if you got suggestions of someone who hasn't been on the show recently. Um, let me know, uh, unless you've seen me put out a call for questions for a driver or someone else and then disregard. So, all right, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is a podcast I named after myself. Should I rename the podcast, the Marshall Pruitt Podcast? I mean, that just doesn't really catch, right? If you're browsing for new podcasts, because it says nothing. 
Should I change it to Marshall Pruitt talks about racing? That's, a, that's an idea I had. I don't know if it's a good one, but I did have it. Um, I want to say thank you to you for your questions, for your patience, knowing that part two is getting done the following week and just being the one for this week. But let's also say a great thank you to the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and the mighty TorontoMotorsports.com. Speak to you next week.